Hey everyone, welcome to episode 329 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. On today's episode, I bring you a fireside chat that was recorded in person with Mark Munch and Richard Burnaby. We had a wonderful conversation about our experiences photographing in Antarctica, and we provide a lot of information relating to what your experience might be like if you were to go on a trip there. It truly is one of the most remarkable destinations for nature photography, and it's no simple feat to go on a trip there. Fortunately, we dispel some popular myths, and we talk about the reality of what it's like to go. I hope you enjoy. Okay, let's get to this week's episode with Mark Munch and Richard Burnaby. All right, we are here in beautiful White Pocket, Arizona. And I am joined by two incredible photographers, Richard Burnaby and Mark Munch. And we are going to talk all about the experience of taking a trip to Antarctica today. And I thought it would be really fun to do this in person just because it's so much more authentic and enjoyable. And you can see everyone's facial expressions and it's just way more fun that way. So uh, with all that being said, why don't we go ahead and uh, have you guys introduce yourselves and we'll just start with you, Mark. Well, good to be here, Matt. And I can't think of a better place. The antithesis of Antarctica. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which gives me many great memories of Antarctica. So it's going to be fun talking about this. All right. I'm from Santa Barbara, California. I was born and raised there. And I've visited a few places in my 56 years. I have three children. I'm married. And uh, it's been like 32 years. <laughs> I better get that part right. Right. <laughs> and... Uh, I've been to Antarctica uh, several times. How many so times? This is really going to be fun. I think I've been there five different trips. Okay. And this will be the sixth coming up here. And I uh, hope many more. So that's me. That's my history. Richard? Yeah. And Mark stole my line because I was going to say nothing gives me Antarctica vibes like the Arizona <laughs> desert. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm Richard Burnaby and I've been a pro for photographer about 20 years uh actually i think it's a little over 20 years i'm in south carolina and i've traveled all over the world but i've antarctica happens to be one of my favorite places and i've made six trips to antarctica and this will be number seven coming up uh, this winter or or their summer our winter i have to go back to why i'm not haven't been there six times i did have a stroke about four years ago. So I think it's four years ago. Anyways, that's why. That's my only excuse. Otherwise, I would have been there. I didn't know that about you. <laughs> yeah, I have. Uh, I had a hole in my heart. So I didn't know this for 50-some years. And I guess 30% of the population is born with this, and then it overfills in as you're between two and three years old. So anyways, they filled the hole back after my stroke, after they realized what it was. And it's called a PFO. And so now I have a filled hole and a holy heart. Yeehaw. I love it. I love it. Well, let's, let's talk about Antarctica. You know, when, when I tell people that I went on a trip to Antarctica, uh, images of frozen expeditions and blizzards and all that kind of wild imaginative imagery pops into people's minds. And people are in total disbelief, like they can't believe that I went to the South Pole, right? Which is sort of a misnomer in itself. But in reality, it seems like uh, the normal trip to Antarctica is quite different than what people imagine it to be. And I was wondering if you could maybe set the stage for what it's really like, including what's involved and what the general experience is like. I'll start, Richard, but I know we both have a lot to say about this. First of all, it's hard to get there. It's it's not like pack up your forerunner and drive across this road. And you got to fly far south on several planes, takes many many hours. Then you go to a strange little town at the southern tip of South America, and then you go to the dock and you get on a ship. And if you don't get on a decent ship, the ocean basically sucks because it makes you seasick if you're not in the right frame of mind. 
So it's a long ways to go. And because of that, you typically have to go with a slightly larger group than you might otherwise think. If you want to go down there on your own, you better be very well versed in sailing and or get a big ship. Either way, it's a long ways to go. And so that kind of sets the stage, which makes it exciting. It's not just the normal place to go. So that really, in my opinion, gives you that imagination. Let your imagination wander into what you're going to see. Because we've all seen pictures, but honestly, until you actually look at an iceberg, you won't understand it. So the visual impact of seeing it is so different than actually photographing it. And that's why I think it's, it's important to know that it's an adventure and a journey both together. I mean, they call it an expedition for a reason, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's an expedition. And I think, you know, ex- Antarctica was on my bucket, top of my bucket list for a long, long time. That's where I wanted to go, I wanted to see. And a lot of places that you dream of for a long time, you build up expectations in your head, right? And you idealize it. It actually becomes bigger and grander than the real experience could ever hope to to match, and Antarctica was one of those few places where you built it up in your head, but the experience was even greater and better than what you imagined it would be. And I know that, we, Matt, we roomed together on this last trip this, this uh, winter. And I asked you, so what did you, you know, what are your expectations versus what reality was? And you said, I was thinking like this flat ice and... The the first thing that you don't realize is it's very very mountainous. Yes. I mean the you go there for for icebergs and you go for penguins, but you don't realize how dramatic the landscape is. Yes, right. And I think you know Antarctica is a big continent, but the area that we go to it's just a very very small part of that, and it's the peninsula which is very mountainous. So the landscapes are much grander and and uh, much more magnificent than you think it is in your mind. That's the first thing that comes to mind, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, Like you said, I was expecting icebergs for sure and penguins, obviously, but I had no idea that there was going to be such a incredibly picturesque, mountainous landscape that had incredible light. And more interestingly for me was the, and maybe we just got lucky, but the variation in the weather pattern and like on any given day, we, he we, says you got lucky, or we got lucky. <laughs> but I cannot tell you, Matt, how lucky you did get. Yes. <laughs> I heard through rumors that it was one of the best trips ever. So It was pretty awesome. And But every trip is, honestly. Yeah, I mean, you know, but, you know, you'd have, in the morning, you might go out on a Zodiac trip to a landing, and you would have sun, and then 15 minutes later, you would have this snow squall that would roll through and every all the landscape would turn really dark and ominous. But then you'd have all of this blowing snow and penguins walking across it. And it just created this incredible contrast that for me as a photographer was, you know, way well beyond what I could ever possibly imagine. We had one landing where it had to be 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. You didn't even wear your parka. No. And I took mine off as soon as I got up to my little my little area where I was shooting penguins. But in 20 minutes, that could change. It could, it could, it could just start snowing and get windy. And that variability is what makes it exciting, too. And I particularly like the bad weather. It's just that bad weather creates other problems. But as far as photography, I prefer those those ominous dark clouds and the snow and the wind that that makes it images feel like Antarctica yes 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 well uh, I'm curious uh, for each of you what is it like to photograph from a boat because you know we're going down there on these fairly large boats although they're not like giant cruise ships like we see going down there but I'm curious you know like what are your subjects and what are some considerations that you might recommend other people think about well for starters you're right it's not a huge cruise ship and in fact we have 80 some passengers and it'll be around maybe 70 to 80 and what's important about the ships is that they have enough deck space because you're walking around on the bow and on the stern and and on the port and starboard, and you really have to understand how to get from the stern to the bow quick. And so that's what you have two days for, is you're crossing the drake. Actually, I'm kind of kidding, because as you're crossing the drake, you don't really want to walk around on the deck. Right. 
But you have to learn how to get around because there's times when the ship's doing its own navigation and you have to get over to the bow and somebody's screaming about a humpback breaching or, and you're on the opposite side of the ship. So photographing from the ship is, could be anything. It could be landscapes. It could be wildlife. It's just, it's all there. And to give you an idea, we've had clients on our trips who got very used to the motion of the ship. And over the course of the 10 days we're on the boat. And as we're crossing the Drake back to Ushuaia, they would stand out on the deck most of the time. Not just an hour, two hours, but like five hours they'd be out on the stern. And even I was thinking, how does that person stay out there so long? It just seems like I'd get bored. And honestly, right about then, the guy comes in and he shows me the back of his camera and he's got this whale shot that nobody had ever seen. I think it was a mink. And everybody was just blown away. Like, how did that happen? We all missed it. But he stood out there on the stern and he finally got this whale shot, yeah. and, which blew my mind. So it just, it, it can all happen from the ship. You, you really, I would say you could go down to Antarctica and just be on the deck of a ship and you'd still have a great experience. But of course, there's more to it than that. Yeah. Everybody goes for penguins, but from the ship, we have the best opportunity to see whales. And on our last trip, we had one evening where we were surrounded by whales. There must have been like five or six of them. And the water was completely just still. So we didn't have waves. So we could see every movement the whales were making from breaching to most of the tailing. And then we had that pink light over the still water with the whales around us. It was just a magical night. And we shot all that from the stern of the ship. And that was like, I want to say that lasted for like three hours. Yeah, it just kept going on and on. And we had icebergs in the background. It was mountains. It was just one of those magical nights. Uh, penguins, you have to kind of get on shore to shoot. I mean, you have to be kind of closer. But what everybody's looking for are the icebergs that goes by with you know, a dozen or so penguins on them. Everybody loves that. That's like a, you know, top shelf image from the deck. But you have to learn to handhold. I recommend everybody using like a 100 to 400 lens. Even the landscapes tend to be longer lens landscapes. Hardly ever will you need a wide angle lens. So the, the landscape is changing because the ice, if you have an iceberg in the foreground, it's always changing relative to the mountains in the background. So you, you see it coming, and so you can kind of pre-visualize what the landscape is going to look like as the boat's moving because the relationship between the iceberg and the mountain changes constantly. You're just waiting for that moment until you can line them up or you can set them you know, corner to corner. So from the deck of the ship, I'm looking at landscapes, I'm looking at icebergs, uh, whales, and then, of course, that top shelf image of the penguins all kind of crammed on a single iceberg, big blue iceberg. Yeah, and what's interesting, too, is there's opportunities for more kind of abstract images, too. You know, I've got those smaller icebergs just off the boat that, you know, you can see through the water and they're like this deep turquoise color under the water and you can create some like underexposed images of because they have shapes and all kinds of different interesting things that you can do absolutely in fact that's why i don't use a polarizer much at all but in antarctica it's great to have a polarizer handy because you can look down through the water through the glare and block off the glare and get some of that color in the ice below the water level and also just the top of a mountain with the 400 millimeter. I agree with Richard, the one to 400 is the lens. And I've seen several times photographers take only one camera out and one lens and it's the one to 400 Yeah, and come back with the most amazing pictures. And, you know, normally we tell people, yeah, you'd be, you should be carrying both bodies, you know, with straps over your shoulders and be ready for a wide angle shot and be ready for a telephoto shot. But I think that if you focus on that one scene, that you're going to find it, especially with 100 to 400. And like Richard said, the long telephoto landscapes are incredible. The close-ups of the penguins are incredible. And if a whale breaches, then you're ready. But you have to be able to focus because otherwise you're, like you said earlier, your mind's just blown. You're looking every which way. You don't know which way to focus on. So it helps to at least bring it down to one lens. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, Richard, you mentioned that we were roommates and you had done all these landings before. And I, I remember early on, I was like, so uh, like, which which lens would you bring? And you were always just like, 
well, you know, like you could bring the 24 to 105 and the 100 to 400, but I'm just going to bring the 100 to 500. I think you had the Canon. And by the end of the Darn trip, Canon. <laughs> by the end of the trip, literally, I would just take my 100 to 400 on every landing and figure out a way. If there was something wider, I would just, you know, stitch it or something. But, you know, as a as a tripod landscape photographer, for the most part, outside of Antarctica, it was definitely a huge learning curve for me in terms of becoming more comfortable with, you know, putting it on auto ISO and, you know, t- letting the camera do some of the thinking for me and and really just getting more and more comfortable hand-holding pretty much everything, everything because you can't use a tripod on the deck. You really can't, you obviously can't use a tripod on the on the little boats. And you on when you're on shore, you really don't have the ability to carry a bunch of stuff because it's so heavy and, yeah. And nowadays they, they really don't want you to put anything on the ground because of the aviary flu, right. avian flu. So it they restrict that as well. They'd ideally have you touch nothing, you know, the only thing that would touch the ground is your boots, which you wash off right. before you go ashore and then when you get back. So it's true. We tell people all the time, don't bother bringing a tripod. And most people go, what? Yeah. What are you talking about? Come on, that can't be. Some people say, thank God. <laughs> I think also by just kind of focusing on one lens, that 100 to 400, bringing a wide angle length is great because there may be that that uh, one image word that will come in handy. But most people don't use the wide angle lens the right way anyway. And when you think of the boat and how big the landscape is, there's a tendency to want to try to capture too much with the wide angle lens. So it's better that if you f- almost force them to a longer uh, telephoto uh, perspective that their their keeper ratio is going to be a lot higher than if they tried to alternate between a, a wide angle to the longer one, stick with the longer one, and 95% of your shooting situations are going to be covered by that 100 to 400 focal length. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, shifting gears a little bit, you know, we talked about photographing from a boat, but what about the Zodiac? What's that like? Uh, good timing, Matt. That's when you'd use the 24 focal length. So you get in a Zodiac and it's a little difficult for a lot of people that haven't been in a Zodiac or photographed from a Zodiac. So you've got the challenge of your yourself moving and other people in the Zodiac moving. And so after a couple of Zodiac rides, people get the picture real quick that they need to get settled and kind of relax and then start focusing on seeing, looking. And once you get into that zone, I, I'll say, then... You know, there's plenty to see, but what really happens is when you're in the Zodiac, you can take it, take them fairly close to some of the icebergs. Some of them are huge, and you'd never want to get close to them because if calving chunks of ice, we don't want to be under those. Or if the iceberg rolls, you don't want to be near that. So it's it can be very dangerous, but luckily the pilots are trained for this, and they know where to go and where not to go. So your job is to focus and look. But that's where a wide-angle lens really helps. And, for example, we've seen one of the most amazing creatures I think all of us who have been there would understand is the leopard seal. And if you get up close to a leopard seal that's sleeping on an iceberg, it's not like watching a sleeping lion. It's something a little more magical about it, and they'll typically roll over and look. They might open their mouth and yawn, and then you get to see their teeth what they're really made of, and they're actually quite large. You know, I've seen them maybe, I, I don't want to exaggerate, but like 16 feet long, and and you don't know it until you get fairly close. And so you've, in order to get that whole leopard seal, you've got to have something a little wider. So there, there, there's a lot of different things to photograph, but I think the main thing to photograph from a Zodiac is the ice. Mm-hmm. And you can go slow right up next to some of the icebergs, and then you see the amazing patterns and details in the side of the iceberg, and then you start looking down below the water, and you get some of those beautiful blue-green aqua colors. Yeah, and what I, what I enjoyed was uh, you're on a moving up boat, and it's moving relatively quickly, unless you're, you know, you find the big iceberg that you want to take it slow going around it, but the compositions are constantly changing. I mean, it's almost like a helicopter ride. Like, you have to be kind of working more from intuition and and really just experimenting and trying different things and kind of pre-visualizing what's coming ahead and like being ready to capture it and I thought that was incredibly fun but also getting used to the 
you know, the faster shutter speeds because you are moving around so much, like you don't want a blurry photo. So you got to jack your shutter speed up to like 1600. And then, you know, of course, you're in auto ISO. So you got to be comfortable working with files that are like, you know, ISO 2000, 3000, 4000. And it's fine, you know, the technology now, the software is so good at killing that noise. It's not that big of a deal. But the other thing I, f I found super fun after a while is that you get really good at communicating with the other people on the boat about, hey, I'm done shooting this side. Do you want to switch with me? Or, you know, as long as the boat's not moving really fast, you can, people can start to get the hang of like knowing when to switch off or, you know, being cognizant of who's around you and like not getting in their photographs and things like that. So that was kind of fun to see how people started to learn how to coordinate and cooperate with one another. That's one of the main reasons we wanted to charter the entire ship. It could be a moment where somebody sees a picture they will never see again in their life, honestly. And so to miss it because, you know, they were half a foot away is just, it's, it's horrible. So it's very important that we have the pilots take time and make sure everybody gets the shot and the angle they want. I mean, of course, you have a limited time, but that's the main reason we have all these photographers. As crazy as we are. We are actually sane in certain things, especially composition. So we do want everybody to have time to get their composition. Yeah. I also think during the Zodiac rides, um, we tend to choose locations where uh, the water's protected. It's, it's a little more still or the water's protected. So you don't have like a lot of choppy waves. So uh, the compositions become a little more complex because then you have the, the icebergs are bigger relative to the mountains and you have different size icebergs and you're bringing all that together. And then there's also the opportunity to shoot reflections as well, because a lot of times mm. the water's still. So you have reflections, you have big icebergs, small icebergs, you're sometimes, you know, 10 or 12 feet from them, depending on the, their size. And the composition is a little bit more complex and that is where you would use the wide angle. Yep. Yep. Okay. So, Let's talk about penguins. I think everyone loves penguins. Everybody right? loves penguins. Everyone. So what are the challenges and benefits of making images of penguins and what stories can we tell by doing so? You know, it's it's almost like asking a photographer that about any picture, honestly. it's You, you have these visions, or I do, of the perfect iceberg, as Richard said earlier, and penguins just in the right little spot pocket where they're standing up on the side of the penguin. Or you have an idea of penguins hopping off an iceberg into the water. And there's just all these scenarios you can wrap your mind around. And, and they're all based on visuals we've had. And it is tricky to get those shots. Those aren't just normal shots. And so a lot of luck goes into that. And then, of course, your skill. And so that's not entirely required to get some pretty darn amazing pictures, though, of penguins. Because when you go ashore and you go into one of these rookeries and you're walking around, there's penguins everywhere. And it used to be, just a couple of years ago, before this flu broke out, that you could sit on the ground and the penguins would walk right over your lap. I mean, they are not afraid of you at all. And they just have the cutest look on their face when they poop on your shoes. <laughs> and I've seen people giggle because of that. <laughs> not every animal gets to have that respect. So penguins are great. And I think the hardest part about a penguin to photograph is that they have kind of a gesture to them. And you're not just documenting them because that's been done. We typically see three types of penguins, the chin strap, the Adelie, and the Gentoo. And really, they're, they all have character and they all have personality. So if you just take a couple minutes, sit down, or well, sorry, you can't sit down, just stop and watch them. And you'll see them starting to go back up to their little nests, the little rock nests they make, or walk back down to the water. And you can kind of time a shot and you can wait for them to get in the right spot. And you can check your focal length, check your settings, make sure everything's right and get a good shot. What, what I thought was really fun is, I mean, out of any animal I've ever observed, which isn't a ton, but they are massive creatures of habit. I mean, they're, once you start just observing them and paying attention to their patterns, you can really predict kind of where they're going to be and what they're, you they know. Their own little highways. Yeah. So they, you can kind of wait for them to walk into an image. If you have a nice background, yes. you just wait for them to, to, to create the image for you. And it takes a little bit of pre-visualization, pre but one of my favorite moments was on one of our last landings and there was a rookery of mostly gentoos, 
but there was this small little cluster of Adelis, and there was this one Adeli in particular that kept taking the same route that was probably like, I don't know, 45 feet long. He would walk up this side of this hill, up another hill, and then he would steal a rock from the nest of one of the gentoos, and he would bring it all the way back down to his nest, to his lady, and drop it off. And it was just so fun watching him do that over and over and over again. But of course, behind him was this incredible mountain landscape. And so I was just like, oh my gosh, this is going to be like the best image ever. <laughs> Trying to get our clients to look beyond just zooming in on a penguin and get some of the landscapes and have that, that wildscape. But you also have some, some, uh, exposure issues because they're black and white and you have that white background and your camera might want to you know underexpose the blacks and not be able to see the eye so or paying attention to that the histogram and watching your exposures is important getting low is important even if you can't kneel down or sit down like you used to you can you can flip the lcd screen up you can use your animal eye tracking and just hold the, the camera low to the ground and shoot so you can get that eye-to-eye -eye contact and your viewers can make that connection and then again, looking for gesture, looking for uh, interaction between animals, and then looking for that wider image so that, you know, you can get the mountains and get some of the environment, which is really important to, to really show a sense of place. Yeah, one of my favorite images of yours, Richard, is uh, it's a chin strap penguin, but it's shot overexposed a little bit, high key. And oh, yeah. I just, it's the way you the framed it and the way that you processed it is just, it's very evocative. The, the, the penguin did all the work because that was all gesture. He, he just kind of spread his little flippers out and it was just a perfectly symmetrical shot. And it was because of the, the white background, it was just begged to be, you know, expressed in a high key type uh, image. And uh, that's one of my favorite too, because it's very expressive. Yes, 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 yes. Awesome. Why don't you go ahead and kick us off, Mark? Tell us about the quality of light that we can expect on an Antarctic expedition. Well, there's a lot of clouds. We'll start with that. And I'll say that typically there's a lot of clouds. <laughs> Not on everybody's first experience do they get the kind of sun that they might want. But you don't want all sun, of course. So there's a lot of light. There's everything from uh, beautiful, bright, clear, crystal clear, hot light to very soft ambient light and the days it never gets 100 percent dark but you do have sunset you do have low light because of the time of year and so you can get the, the clouds can turn pink if there's a break and that's a beautiful time of night it's usually around midnight mm -hmm. if you're up on deck then you'll get some of those pictures as well but if you do have soft light the soft light makes pictures of the ice much better because it shows all those subtle colors of blues and greens and aquas that we we want to see and it might not look that way on your camera if you're looking at the back of your camera the lcd you probably won't notice it there it's not until you get back and you look at it on your computer that you actually see all those subtle colors and you have to kind of turn the lights down in the room and really study that picture and see all those blues and aquas and the gradations between them so I think the soft light is probably the most fantastic soft light you can Im imagine, probably just because you're in Antarctica. Soft light is soft light well, everywhere. And it lasts but forever because of how far south you are. It lasts forever, yep. And that time of year especially. But you also get those moments where the sun breaks out from behind a cloud and you get that kind of transition light, which is what I love is you get a little bit of light hitting something near you and then the other side of the composition is shade and so you're kind of in in that zone that's a little brighter than soft light and you get those highlights and if you're in the right spot at the right time then you can get that backlighting on the porpoising penguins mm -hmm. that's can be a spectacular setting where you're just basically using high speed, high shutter speed, high frame rate, I should say, and a high shutter speed, and you're just praying. You are spray and praying because it's almost impossible to get them, but when you do get it, it's worth it. It's worth every frame you burn on that setting. So that backlighting can be spectacular, and it's not always because it blows a lot down on the Antarctic Peninsula, which is why the Drake is so nasty, because all the winds come off the Pacific, and they blow through that little gap in what's called the Scotia Plate, the geologic feature that created it, 
and that's where the wind's going and it's blowing from the Pacific to the Atlantic and then it gets into the peninsula and it swirls around and just creates havoc of these what look like calm little bays like Paradise Bay. I've seen Paradise Bay look like Paradise and I've seen it look like the Drake. So <laughs> this can happen anywhere. But what's beautiful about that is that transitional light. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's almost the light is, it seems like the light is always good. It's either soft light, soft diffuse light, or you're getting that twilight, like at dawn and at dusk, which, like you said, lasts forever. It's hard for people to sleep. You know? I was going to say, and, and even when it's sunny, you know, the, the light is low angled enough that you can usually work with it. It's not too harsh. The most difficult part about the light is finding time to sleep because you could literally shoot 24 hours and you, you just get worn out and then you, you're not creative because you're, you're tired. It's just finding, picking those moments to get some rest. People do ask us how big are the cabins because, you know, I like to be alone in a cabin and I like to get some sleep. And, and what I really want to say is you're probably not going to be in there that much. <laughs> By the time you get down to the peninsula, you're going to want to be out on deck photographing. It's just that captivating. It just keeps you out on deck. And if you're willing to do it, if you're willing to get enough fortification in your food, your breakfast and lunch and dinner, then just stay out on deck. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's an interesting side question because I found that I had to really manage my sleep schedule when I was down there because I wanted to be that guy that was up on deck at all hours of the morning. But I also knew that if I did that, I would be completely useless, especially as an instructor. Like there's no way I'm going to be able to help someone with their camera settings if I got two hours of sleep. So what are some of your strategies, Richard? I don't know if it's a strategy, but I tended to stay out late, you know, to around midnight. I'm I'm thinking about maybe it's time to get some rest. And knowing that I'm going to miss sunrise because the sunrise is going to be, you know, just a few hours later. And, okay, I'll take that sweet, you know, evening light until I just can't take anymore. And then I'll get some rest knowing that in the middle of some great dream I'm having, there's some great light outside that I'm just missing. And that's, I can't do anything about that. Yeah, yeah. I would agree with you, except for the few sunrises I have great pictures of. <laughs> so... For the most part, I would agree with you, Richard. <laughs> uh, and and I can nap. Over the years, I've learned how to nap because I have to. You just otherwise you're burning both ends of the stick, and you can't do it. I can't do it that long. But it is true. You just need your rest. And sometimes I tell people often is, you know, you're you're down here a limited number of days on a 10, 11 day trip. You're down there five and a half to seven days, depending on what else is going on. So you feel that urgency to be out there the whole time you don't want to miss anything but it's a relationship between your you and yourself and if you don't understand that you'll wind yourself down to where you're useless and i've seen people sitting there looking at their camera forgetting where the shutter speed dial is (laughs) obviously they know where it is but they forgot because they're exhausted well, I have a little pro tip. So if, like I mentioned, I know that I'm probably going to miss some sunrise light. If you're like me and that's the case, make sure your windows are closed and your portholes are closed so that if you are missing something, you don't know about it. And if you don't know about it, you don't feel so bad about it. Yeah, I think that's good. So overall, can you perhaps describe the quality of the experience and why people should consider adding a trip to Antarctica to their bucket list? Uh, good question, but I think, honestly, I'm always asked, why is it on my bucket list? <laughs> I think we hear about it. Huh? It's like Africa and Antarctica and a few other places around the world. And it's there for the reason I think I mentioned earlier, which is you really have no idea until you see it. It's I can tell you all about it, but the quality of the experience, it's easy to want a luxurious, it depends on your personality, but it's easy to want a beautiful ship and have incredible food and a little spa break and sit in a sauna and then go out on deck and have a glass of champagne. Some people. But we also want it to be more of an expedition. We want you to feel the cold and feel how powerful the place is down there. And so what we've done over the years is we've changed ships. And right now we have one called the Sea Spirit, which is a much a greater upgrade than we've ever done in the past and it's a beautiful ship and the food is excellent and everybody coming off the ship feels happy about 
their food, their cabin. There's no problem with the crew. And so all that is just taken care of. And and that's where most of us put our emphasis on a trip, even though it's sometimes subconscious. We just want to know we're comfortable. Because I do believe that if somebody's comfortable, then they're able to act creatively. And so our job uh, doing a workshop is to make sure everybody's at that level of comfort so that then they can feel creative and be creative. And I think it's important to know that sleep is one of those things. Food is another. You know, some people can't eat everything. So they make that completely simple nowadays. And the food, no matter what you eat or don't eat, is it's very easy to accommodate everything today. So all that's taken care of. It's, uh, it's really the quality of the experience is left to you and your personal ability to connect with it. And, and that's why it's so easy for me to say, just go on deck and stay there the whole time because it gives you that extra time to feel that bond with the location, which doesn't always happen in five days, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but that's why I go back when I do because I get down there and I realize, oh my God, I could spend a month easily, three months four months and I would always feel like I need something more so it's it's just a relationship that you have with a location that sometimes takes uh, months sometimes it takes people an hour so it's it's a personal uh, decision what kind of uh, or memory you have that creates the quality experience but as far as logistics go I think we've got that covered and, and why to go to Antarctica I really don't think there's any Unlike other places that you can visit, um, instead of seeing the real thing, you see something that's similar to it. With Antarctica, the only way you can really see Antarctica is to go to Antarctica. There's no other places in North America or or in Europe or in Asia that's anything like it. Even Greenland. Okay. Even Greenland is like a, on a smaller scale. It's one of the things you first realize when you get to Antarctica is how big it is, how many mountains, how it's... Um, you have to experience Antarctica to experience Antarctica. You just can't find a, a good substitute for it. Hmm. What are the advantages of doing a trip where there are a large number and diverse types of photographers um, that are professionals that are there to help other people with instruction? We have enough pros there so that every pro can go on a different zodiac when we're going ashore. And then we scatter about when we're on a landing so that there's somebody around. If you have a question you want an answer to or for, then they're there. And then we also give presentations throughout the trip. So as we're crossing the Drake, if you're not too seasick, you can enjoy some of the presentations about composition. Um, And everybody has a different personality about how they teach. And that's one of the great lessons I've learned is I've learned so much since I've started doing photography workshops and creating this company, Mutual Workshops, is that there's such a variety in the way somebody just talks about shutter speed. You, you wouldn't believe how, <laughs> how controversial that how can be. Or, and so you learn a lot. And you might think, oh, I know composition enough. I know how to get my shutter speed set. I know that. But it's not until you get that uh, creative immersion that you get that extra little touch of something you needed to give you that um, creative thought. So it's it's a benefit. It's a huge benefit. Even if we had one instructor that could handle the whole crew of 80-some people, <laughs> it wouldn't be the same at right. all. Yeah, it's, it's funny because on the trip I was on, Jeff Wendorf, who's super into bird photography, was on the trip. And Antarctica, especially when you're crossing the Drake and you're getting closer to land, there's tons and tons and tons of bird species that you can photograph. And I'm not a big bird photographer, but I was like, well, this is obviously an area that I can learn more about. So I was, I got to Jeff and I was like, hey, can you teach me how to take pictures of birds in flight uh, like you do? And and then uh, we were on one of the landings and there was a, a, a skua, one of those birds that steals the eggs, the penguin eggs, and uh, it kept doing this circular pattern. And it had, of course, in the backdrop, there was these incredible mountains and, and the ocean below. And and it and I was just watching this skua fly around in circles, and it did this loop, and it was coming right at me, flapping its big wings. And I used the techniques that Jeff taught me, and I got this incredible photo of it. So even someone who does photography all the time, you can learn something from someone else's there. And the difference between a Munch uh, trip to Antarctica and, say, a a, a normal tourist tri- uh, boat or ship that goes there is that we're all photographers. And it's a photocentric itinerary, a photocentric trip. 
And so not only are you learning from the you know, nine to 10 pros that are there to help, but you're surrounded by your peers who are also photographers. So you, you're immersed in, a, in, in a, a situation where everybody's into photography and everything is about photography. So that's very unlike a ship that others that I've been on, like with the National Geographic and so on and so forth, where you just had casual tourists that are just watching from the windows and they're there for the experience, which is great. I'm not disparaging that, but you're surrounded by photo enthusiasts and, and pros and everything is about photography. And we do uh, photo reviews, so anybody who wants to participate can take a picture from their card, share it, and we have a group of pros, either usually two at one time or sometimes one, and we'll talk about the composition, what they did right, what they did wrong, and, you know, giving a critique, a good critique, is, of course, can be anything from good to bad to poor, and so what we try to do very respectfully is teach somebody something. You can't just say a picture sucks and then walk away. Because that doesn't help anybody. Or so, good <laughs> yeah. Or this is great. Let's go to the next one. Why is it great? Or why does it suck? And those are the important things. And that's why we have so many different good opinions. Because none of us can do that perfectly. It's it's something you could say you're good at, but honestly, there's, you know, not only are is everybody out on deck photographing, but all the pros are out on deck photographing, and they get worn down sometimes. And sometimes, you're you can't really give a good review in that situation even though you're up there standing there looking at a beautiful picture you might not recognize it and in that situation i've seen before one other pro get up off their butt and run up and grab the mic and say wait a minute let me talk about this picture because <laughs> they had the energy to do it and they understood it right at that moment well and to your point i think what's most valuable about the fact that there's such a diverse uh, offering of pro photographers is that each one of them offers their own perspective their own experiences their own techniques and you know for example richard and i we did an image critique together of some images and you know there's times where i might notice something that you don't and you notice something that i don't and there might be something i think looks really good and you're like well actually i would have done this instead and i'm like ah, actually that's a good point that works too so i think it's so subjective yes and and just watching two pros have this uh, friendly debate about whether you know that rock should be there or not they learn something just by hearing each of us kind of talk about it. We're, we're just being friendly, obviously, but they could see the pros and the cons for, is that rock adding anything to the image or is it taking away? Right. Yeah. No, it's really fun, too. It's totally switching gears. Uh, what would you say is the most significant takeaway from visiting Antarctica with a camera? Well, that's that's a broad question, Matt. Yeah. I guess a lot of it is just your, your own personal experience and what you like. So, like you were saying, you're, you're primarily a landscape photographer. And I remember asking, you know, what are your initial impressions of Antarctica? And you said the mountains. I didn't expect the mountains. So, for someone like you, the mountains, right? Right. And someone else who uh, would be more into wildlife and came for the penguins and the seals and the whales, that might be what the takeaway. But I think you just have to take a, almost like a holistic approach to it and, and just take it all in together the wildlife, the, the isolation of the place, how lonely it is, how you don't see, uh, you know, uh, buildings and hotels on the mountains or roads. It's true wilderness. And I think that's what, I remember going back to my first trip to Antarctica, that's what I felt, is how isolated it was, how pristine it was. There's, aside from some, a few scattered research stations, it is pure uh, wilderness and you look at those mountains like I mean, if those mountains were any other place they'd have a name they'd be famous people would be climbing them they probably don't even have names and I think that's what I take away from it when I first went it's just I kind of took everything in, in a holistic uh, uh, idea of what Antarctica was it was just a lonely uh, isolated pure wilderness and there's so few places like that left on earth mm -hmm. these days and it helps that ships are a member of Iato, which is important because what ships have to do is they juggle for which harbor they're going to be in at one time and how much time they're going to spend there. And it's pretty understood that they'll have certain uh, half a day there. So whenever we go into a location like Paradise Bay, all the other ships that are down there at one, any one given time are somewhere else. And that adds to that wilderness experience. And that's getting more difficult day by day as more ships are being built 
and they're larger ships. And what's important of having fewer than 100 people is that everybody gets to go ashore at one time. And that's extremely important because if you get on a larger ship that have more than 100 people, not every you won't probably go ashore on every excursion. So on this trip, everybody gets to go ashore at least twice. Plus, they might get a Zodiac trip or two on a given day. And that's a lot of time out. That's another problem which keeps you awake. <laughs> Not to mention the deck shooting. So, it, you know, the whole place is designed to have this experience that Richard just so eloquently stated, which is you're at the bottom of the world and you're looking at ice, you're looking at penguins, you're looking at this wildlife that very few people have seen. And, and it's true, very few people have seen it. Yeah, one of my observations was the challenge between sticking to that itinerary and honoring kind of the agreements of how long you can spend at any given location with the fact that, you know, people probably would love to do a Zodiac ride or a landing at different hours of the day. Like, let's do a Zodiac landing at 8 o'clock at night when we normally would be eating dinner. But there's all of these logistical challenges that people might not be aware of that kind of make it challenging to make every single person happy every single day. Absolutely. And and uh, every pro we brought down there, myself included, have always said to the, you know, the cap, the captain, <laughs> expedition leader, why can't we go out at midnight? And the answer is, well, it's either that or the next three meals because their crew can only work so many hours and they only have so many crew members to accommodate everybody. So there's just a lot to the logistics of being down there. And then there's safety always at the top of the chart. And so if their crew gets tired, they have sleep hours they have to maintain because if you're piling in a Zodiac to shore, you have to be rested and well ready for anything that can happen. And just last year, there were some tragedies that occurred down in Antarctica and in different places on these ships. And, and some of those were on Zodiac, some were on the ships. And so safety is number one. And even getting around, walking around on the ship itself is extremely important. And we always go through a demonstration in the beginning of the uh, expedition that shows everybody how to safely get around. Don't just walk around with your hands around your cameras. <laughs> you have to use the handrails. And in many cases, if it's a little rough, you have to have both hands on the rails. And it's extremely important because we've seen situations where that didn't occur and, and people were injured. So you have to always be safe. And there are a lot of rules that Yato has created over the years. All the guides have to take a test to understand those rules. And if it's your first time down there, you're going to be thinking the same thing you just mentioned is, why can't we be out there right now and the light's pink and right. I want to be on shore with a penguin in front of me. And it's, it's really easy to think that. And, and it's not wrong. It's, it's everything we've been trained to do as photographers. So it's, it's just more of a logistical situation. And once in a while, you do get that pink light and you're in an incredible spot where there's icebergs out there, maybe even a penguin on an iceberg. <laughs> the gold standard. So do you find it difficult to photograph in the cold? Uh, well, a little bit because I have uh, Reynard's syndrome, which is mm, I have mm -hmm. my capillaries shut down. So my hands get cold, my toes get cold. So They're cold right now. And I'm even a little chilled right now. Yeah. yeah. It's freaking freezing out here. What is it? <laughs> 80? Yeah, it's like 80. 80 yeah. Celsius. <laughs> uh, so I've done it a lot. So I can say to you that uh, I've, I'm not the right person to a answer that question, but we've seen it many, many times where people get cold fingers and they can't operate their camera buttons. And so we go through uh, a list of different gloves that people can try, little thin gloves so that they can keep something warm around their hands so that they can still press those little buttons on their cameras. And then also we help people with getting the cameras set up right so they have to press fewer buttons to get to where they want to go. That's what something like auto ISO is great for. So you don't have to hit that button and turn that dial just to change your ISO. And uh, when you go out on shore, it can be 50 degrees and sunny, just like it is right now, only a little cooler. And then like Richard said, 10 minutes later, cloud comes over and it's a blizzard. So both can happen when you're out. So you have to be ready for both. And I think the coolest I've ever been where I just had to go back was out on a Zodiac in a 
snowstorm. We were photographing this amazing iceberg. And thank God I wasn't the only one who was cold. So everybody <laughs> agreed. <laughs> but our feet were cold. Yeah. You know, of all things. Uh, and it wasn't only my feet. So we tell people bring two layers of wool socks. And they our ship supplies rubber boots. But if those aren't good enough, you can bring your own thermal rubber boots that are made for 50 below zero if you happen to be susceptible to cold weather. So again, if you're comfortable, then you're, you'll be creative. So we always stress that. And we, we prepare people uh, to come down, like Mark was mentioning about the, the layers and the, uh, the parka and boots and, and snow pants, insulated pants. So most of the time, people are pretty comfortable. The, the area of exposure is the hands. That is the most difficult part for me, too, because we can't just put these huge mittens on our hands, right, or put them in our pockets. We have to be operating on camera. And so you're trying to find that, that, that balance between comfort and dexterity to use the camera. So that is always going to be an issue, and it's always going to be an issue. So I find myself, my hands getting cold, and I think most people do uh, as photographers. Sometimes when the shooting is so good, I might be cold, but I don't even notice it until afterwards. Like the shooting's over. I'm like, holy crap, my hand is frozen. I can't move it. So I do get cold, but it's usually just the hands, the fingers. That's that's the most susceptible part. Mm-hmm. And my only trick is I buy the little USB hand warmers. Oh, yeah. They're battery operated. Uh, well, there's a battery in there. And so you plug it in, charge it up, and it's just a hot item to hold. So I'm terrible with gloves. Even though my hands get cold, I just hate wearing them. So I'll go gloveless for 10 minutes, and then when the excitement settles down or I get too cold, then I stick my hand back in my pocket, warm it up around that hot little, uh, it's like a wafer, if you will, Yeah. and then I'm good for another five minutes. Yeah, That's actually my only tip. learned about those through my son. I guess it's pretty popular in video gaming. They use those, yeah. What? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I got one, and it's awesome. <laughs> They're very helpful, yeah, and it's better than buying the little packets that you have to discard and throw away and that's a wasteful but what's become popular and we were using them in Iceland a few months ago is the thing you see on the sidelines of like football games where you put your hands in from each side it's like a little pouch and they're warmed also I think by uh, like a USB charged device that have a little warmer inside and then when you just put your hands in there real quick and then when you go to shoot you take them out and shoot and you put them right back in I've yet to buy one, but that's that's my list when we go next. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So you've touched on this a little bit already, uh, but what is the wildlife experience like? Wild. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> it it is truly wild. That's the beauty of it. Is there's there are no fences, and there are no restrictions other than our personal involvement in startling or scaring the wildlife, and all the expedition leaders make sure everybody understands those limits so that you don't just walk up to an elephant seal and be mauled. Honestly, it's an incredible experience because you never know exactly where you're going to see something or what you're going to see. Of course, you'll see the rookeries with the penguins. That's pretty much a standard. And you most likely will see Adelis and chin straps and gentoos often. But you never... No, because times are changing and the water temperature is changing. And so we don't know how long the chin straps will be down there. And we don't know if, uh, you know, the delis are going to take over everywhere. And so there's just different things that changing as the peninsula is changing with different water temperatures and air temperatures. And that's what is changing where you're going to see the animals. When we go down, you have the ability to see humpbacks, uh, killer whales, and orcas, I should say. And, of course, the leopard seals and wood elf seals. And then you'll see the, all the birds. You can imagine there's skuas. There's one gull. You don't have to worry about memorizing too many gulls. And then there's uh, the albatross. And the wandering albatross is one of the most beautiful creatures ever. If, if, uh, if you can ever see an actual model of an 11-foot wingspan on a wandering albatross, it'll blow your mind. They're beautiful birds. So there's just all that to see, and you never know where you're going to see it. So that's what makes you a little uh, spastic. (laughs) Yeah, one of the most exciting moments on our trip was uh, we were uh, parked in one of these bays in the evening, and there was some penguins that were 
rushing to get to shore and then we realized that there was three orcas that were chasing them to eat them for dinner and it was that's right that was on our that was on our trip yeah and that's the thing you, you could be surprised it, out, out of nowhere uh, orcas or whales the penguins like you said you're gonna f- that's almost guaranteed i mean it is guaranteed but antarctic is the only place you can go to see you could see penguins in smaller numbers the tip of south america and and south and south africa and uh, Galapagos, but to see them and the the numbers that we see them in some of these rookeries, there's only one place to go, and that is Antarctica. Yeah, and it was interesting. One of the, the things that I really enjoyed about our trip is that there's a bunch of um, trained naturalists that are on board too. Um, they're also the they also happen to be the the zodiac drivers, but which is actually really neat because while you're on the zodiac, you can ask them questions about, hey, like tell me more about what that penguin is or you know what what's going on like i noticed that these penguins aren't like they're not laying eggs and they're not nesting what's going on there and then someone chimes in and says yeah it's because the climate change and the weather pattern is doing this and there's more snow now and it's preventing them from having more time to lay eggs and it's going to affect how the populations of these rookeries and it's just really cool to get that fully immersed kind of scientific experience as well and they're there not only to to answer your questions but they give presentations too in addition to the pros you know photography presentations they give presentations on the history on the, you know, the wildlife, the geology, and everything. And so it's more than just photography. You get to learn about the natural history there, too. Yeah. There's a lot of carbon pollution that's generated by travel to the poles. I mean, obviously, you've got, you know, 100 people flying from all over the world down to the southern tip of the continent there. Um, and then we're getting on these boats that are typically powered by clean diesel, so it's a little cleaner, but it's still, you know, you're pumping out a lot of CO2. Why do you think it's worth it? I, I'll, I'll start. Real quick, i, I got to say something corporate. Well, we have a uh, company <laughs> kayak, so we're going to be kayaking down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's clean. Right. Kayaks are clean, right? I think so. Yeah, it's self-powered. So, yeah. I mean, that, that is sensitive, um, and I think we're all aware of it. But I always see trips like this as a trade-off. Um, yeah, the, the carbon footprint's pretty big to get there and then the ship itself. But I see the trade-off in that the more people who are there and experience a place and make like an emotional connection to a place, the more likely they will be constituents if there's ever like a plans for some country to claim and start mining or or overfishing or something like that in the Antarctic waters, there's more constituents that will stand up for it. And they, it's, it'll become personal rather than just an abstraction. Like Antarctica is a place that's a long, far, far, far away. Yeah, it doesn't affect remote. me at all. It doesn't yeah. affect me. But when you experience it, then it becomes personal. To, it, you have an emotional connection. And those people will stand up for it. And they'll they'll petition their governments. Their, uh, and... I see that as a, as a legitimate trade-off for the carbon uh, footprint for going down there. I, I do agree 100%. There's, it's always why I think we should have more children in the wilderness, because if they don't see it for anything of value, then they're not going to be protecting it in the next generation. So it's along those lines. And I would say that, that two things are happening. One is that there are many more ships being built to tour Antarctica, and they're unfortunately larger ships. And we don't know how many of them will become members of IATO, which is critical to saving the environment down there because you just don't want many big ships sailing around you when you're in something like Nico Harbor. So it's it's at that point already where the number of people visiting Antarctica will quadruple in maybe the next several years. We don't know exactly. But a lot of them won't be able to go ashore. And so... Everything behind Iato that built Iato is out of respect for the place. And if there's a lack of that respect, then, of course, it'll be just minerals and resources and 
And originally it was, you know, when the Norwegians went down there back in the uh, early 1900s and they whaled, I mean, it was, there were whales everywhere Mm -hmm. and they took advantage of the whales and there's signs of that abuse, if you will, of the slaughtering that occurred of all the humpbacks and and that's in some of the stops we make. You can see the old fuel tanks and the old Mm -hmm. rusted out buildings of what's left behind of those days. And so that's what encourages me is that we've come through some of those hard times already and it's at a state now where it's preserved and the more people that it's personal to i think the better chance it has of surviving Mm -hmm. yeah okay well my last question is more of a fun one but uh tell us about the drake passage the drake (laughs) lake (laughs) that's what we sit down and chant for months before the trip we want to stay quiet so the Drake can be notorious because not only is it uh, high winds, but then they twirl around and you get an evil northeast wind followed up with an evil southwest wind, and they collide and the waves are doing everything. It's just spaghetti. It's just a mess. And we've experienced that, and some people actually love it because the ship's doing this. It's bobbing up and down, and they feel dramatic and exciting. But most people feel a little queasy. They just don't quite get that excited about crossing the Drake. Uh, A couple good tips uh, or bits of news. One is that this Sea Spirit has stabilizers and it's because of the stabilizers it's faster now. So you can get across the Drake in about two days whereas it used to be three on some of the other ships. So that's good news and that gives us more time down on the peninsula. But the Drake also is where you'll see those beautiful wandering albatross. So if you can stomach it, that's more time on deck. Um, In addition, we have some of the slideshows that we give and talks that we give about composition and photography, and the naturalists give talks about that as well. So you can use that time, hopefully, if you're not too sick. They also have, we give out uh, advice on some of the medications you can take, but of course, a lot of that you can look up online and find out what works for you, because you might not know and have a backup just in case something doesn't keep all the food down. Uh, have yourself plan A and B and maybe even C. Yeah, I've seen the best and the worst of the Drake. Um, well, wait, so have I. I remember one time Richard was giving a lecture, <laughs> and uh, he was not feeling so well. <laughs> so he kind of, something happened. He lost something over the side of the ship and went back in five minutes later and gave his talk. I, it was almost like mid-presentation. It was like, excuse me, guys. And uh, you went to the, the deck and Took care visibly of sick in front of, what, 70 or 80 people, walked back in and continued as if nothing happened. So th- I, should, a, get, I should get high you, grades for that. You're a pro. <laughs> <laughs> so I've seen it at its best. I've seen it at its worst. It, if it's at its best, then enjoy. It's like a cruise line. It's just uh, it, you don't even notice you're on the water. If it's at its worst, then just consider that as like the initiation fee to go see the most beautiful place on the planet. That's the way I see it. Yeah. It's got to be a cost. Yeah, and I know a lot of people, when I talked to them about my trip, you know, that was one of the first questions they asked. It's like, oh, what was it like? And I don't think I could, I don't think I could ever do that. And, you know, I'm not a big water person myself, and that was one of my biggest anxieties going into it. But honestly, I, my personal takeaway, it wasn't as bad as I was kind of hyping it up to be Matt, in my mind. I know, I know, I know. You don't understand. You had it so easy <laughs> that nobody should have it that easier on their first trip. And you, if you go enough times, yeah, the, the law of averages will catch up with you, and I promise. <laughs> and I hope it does because you're not really experiencing the Drake until you've seen some rolling waves and you've got just, that's part of the experience. I know some people who won't go down there unless they're on a sailboat for that reason uh, of what Richard they said. They want it to be They wild. want the full experience. And uh, the ship we used before, the Sea Spirit, was that. It was an expedition ship, and uh, it, it had a little more movement. <laughs> <laughs> movement. Well, guys, this has been really amazing. I mean, look around us. We're in the pristine wilderness of Arizona and talking about the Arctic... <laughs> And and Antarctic. our Antarctic. There are circle. no polar bears. No polar bears. That's right. But this has been so fun. And if people are interested in taking a trip like this, what, uh, where should they go? What should they learn about? 
Well, we have a page dedicated to our Antarctic 2023 trip, and which is uh, embarking on the 1st of December. And so everybody has to fly down by the 30th, and then we have a little initiation, and then we go on the expedition. We come back on the 11th of December. And so the page will have several different items. One is the itinerary, the dates, and a FAQ and FAQ. So then in there is a lot of information about flying down there, how to get around Buenos Aires, depending on your flight times, and how to get into Ushuaia, and then back home. And so we, we share all that information, plus all the items you need, including gloves and boots. And, and I know the Sea Spirit gives away parkas, so everybody gets their own parka. And so that's where you're going to find all the information about the trip is under www.mutualworkshops.com. And just because I know my last name, I'll spell it out, M-U-E-N-C-H, workshopsplural.com. Yeah, and... And one last question I have for you. You know, there's a lot of other um, tour companies doing trips down to Antarctica. What differentiates Munch from the rest? Well, uh, we find more penguins. No. (laughs) All right. Guaranteed more penguins. All right. To be serious, I think it's our our group of leaders. And we also have the experience of uh, picking the right ship. So we've combined both of those to create this, I think, rather unusual experience where we're photography focused and biologically sensitive. And so those are key elements to understanding the place and creating that bond with the location that you're going. And I think we have included that and thought of that very sensitively. And I'll add on to that as kind of a newcomer. I've been really impressed with the amount of kind of forethought that goes into understanding each individual's needs in terms of, you know, helping them become more comfortable with making this trip and understanding kind of what their fears and anxieties are and then trying to to help assuage those as much as possible. It's true. Thank you for mentioning that because we do go way out of our way to help somebody understand it because the last thing we want is somebody who really wants to go, not go because they're afraid of the Drake. And if, if you really understand that, you know, we've seen people just sleep for two days and they come up and everything's fine because when you do get down there, the water's calm and then you can have your six days of fabulous photography and then you go back to your bunk if that's what you need to do. So it's possible. But honestly, to have somebody well-equipped and understands the situation, that's tantamount to enjoying themselves. Love it. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. That was fun, Matt. Thank you. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Welcome back. Well, thank you to Mark and Richard for the wonderful chat. If you would like to join us on a trip to Antarctica, or anywhere in the world for that matter, please head to munchworkshops.com to explore our various offerings. There are trips offered across the globe with some of the most knowledgeable pros that are out there. We hope to see you soon. That's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.